Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Our Researcher of the Month is Nora Trompeter, a current PhD candidate within the Centre for Emotional Health at Macquarie University. Her research is focused on understanding how eating disorders develop in adolescence. Specifically, she investigates factors that may improve early intervention and prevention methods. Welcome, Nora. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me today. And thank you so much for joining us all the way from Australia, which is very exciting. It is indeed. Thank you. Now, Nora, you're here because we're celebrating you as our researcher of the month within Tooled Up Education because you've recently published a fascinating paper in Early Intervention in Psychiatry Journal, and we're here to talk about it. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about the paper. I'm very excited to share it with you all. The first thing I noticed, Nora, when I was reading through the sort of the abstract was that eating disorders commonly occur during adolescence, yet only 10 to 15% of teenagers receive appropriate treatment. I was quite taken aback by that. Obviously, that provided the kind of the impetus for this particular study. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just like you said, it's quite uh, staggering to hear how few adolescents with an eating disorder are receiving appropriate treatment. So there's definitely a lot to be done in terms of getting these teenagers into treatment services. Now, Nora, in this study, you were looking at the differences between teenagers with eating disorder symptoms who were receiving treatment and those with symptoms who weren't. So tell us a little bit about why you sort of chose to look at those two different groups and what you were aiming for. Yeah, definitely. So this kind of came about from what you said earlier about the small uh, percentage of adolescents with an eating disorder who are actually receiving treatment. So we wanted to know more about the differences between the adolescents who are not receiving treatment. So we recruited these from a high school, um, so just a general community setting, and the adolescents who are receiving treatment. So these were recruited specifically from eating disorder services, so out-of-patient treatments, to look at how these differ in terms of some of the key symptoms. To tell us a bit more about what we might need to address in, in terms of getting people into treatment services. So it's probably a good idea for us to define what we're actually referring to when we say eating disorders. I think in your paper, you say that they're characterized by disordered eating and maladaptive weight control behaviors that often encompass additional problems with high levels of body satisfaction. Is that the sort of definition that you used as a gauge for the study? Yeah, definitely. So we use the official criteria from the diagnostic manual, um, which has a lot of different disorders that all encapsulate eating disorders. But mainly the common similarity between this is that they all have some kind of body image disturbance. Most of them do and um, some kind of eating behavior that is different from usual that is causing some kind of distress so whether it be dieting fasting or whether it be binge eating or purging so those kind of behaviors so you set out I think you distributed surveys tell us a little bit about the methodology Yeah, absolutely. So we had two different groups of samples that we looked at. 
So one of them was our community sample. So there we had high school students in here in Australia and they completed a survey during school. And then we had clinical samples. So those were adolescents who came for their first appointment at a private practice to receive treatment for an eating disorder, and they received a similar type of survey where they also completed the same questionnaires. And I think it was quite a large sample, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. So our community sample was taken from a large study, the Everybody Study. So we had over a 1,000 high school students complete that. Now, not all of them were included in this study because we only selected the ones that did meet a criteria for an eating disorder based on their survey and who said they hadn't sought treatment for this problem. So for this study, our sample was a bit smaller, but still quite large. So tell us the main finding from the study. Yes. So I think most notably, we found that adolescents who were receiving treatment reported more severe eating disorder symptoms compared to those not receiving treatment. But the psychological distress experience did not differ between the groups. So again, highlighting that there is this real treatment gap in terms of giving these adolescents appropriate help. So, I mean, basically, if people are in high levels of distress in terms of the physical symptoms, they will seek help. But there are sort of earlier red flags, I think, that are potentially being missed. That's sort of implied by your study. Yes, definitely. And also what it's showing is the degree to which these are experienced. So in our study, what we found as well, that a lot of these behaviors and eating disorder symptoms were experienced by both groups, but that the adolescents who were in treatment had higher levels of these kind of behaviors or symptoms. So to say that it's probably they're only getting treatment once it gets to a more severe stage. So definitely a need there for some earlier intervention. Now, one of the most striking things I've underlined it and highlighted it when I was reading the study is that you say here whether or not adolescents seek treatment often depends on their parents. A common barrier reported by parents is the belief that their child's symptoms are not severe enough to require professional help. Can we just dwell on that for a moment? When you say that, what are the sort of the the things that a parent might say, oh, you know, they might get over that or that's not really an eating disorder. What's happening there? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think there's still a lot of unknowns about eating disorders, about what they actually are and what they can look like. I think we commonly think about them as being very thin girls who diet a lot so parents may not be aware that it can also occur in boys, for example, or in adolescents of higher weight status, or that it could be something that's not dieting. So I think there's a lot of confusion around it of what, what is happening. So that can be really difficult for parents to actually identify what is going on. And sometimes also parents just aren't aware of the degree to which this is impacting their child, because a lot of these are in internal things we experience, so the distress or the thoughts and feelings adolescents may have around eating in their body that they might not share with their parents to the same degree. So they may not be aware of just how severe this problem is for their child. Now, one of the things that I've really, again, highlighted from your study is you mention the need for greater mental health literacy, which is a very important term. 
And we've just referred to some of the things, you know, that people aren't aware what is or isn't disordered eating behaviors. And I think it's important that we just dwell on that for a moment. So in a family home where they are sort of a mentally healthy literate, if you like, if they're emphasizing many of the components of mental health literacy, let's just talk about what that might look like. So, for example, it's about recognizing and naming emotion, isn't it? Talking about our emotions. Mm. Definitely. So being able to talk about emotions, label them, create an environment where they're shared, but also for parents to have an awareness of what different mental health problems can look like, some of their symptoms, so they can give their children the necessary space to talk about them. Adolescents themselves may not have the insight to just really say, this is something that I'm feeling that this is an eating disorder or this is anxiety. So for parents to be able to help them label those things is really helpful. And is it important to sort of take a, that our eating habits in family life are very complex, aren't they? And even adults can comfort eat or have disordered eating behaviors at particular times of stress. But what are the sort of the red flag behaviors? I mean, I was conscious when I interviewed Dasha Nichols, who's a psychiatrist over here in the UK, specializing in eating disorders. She talked about shifts in children's sort of philosophy around food. So, for example, suddenly becoming a vegan or wanting to be, you know, real sort of interesting shifts in philosophy. Is there anything else that you would mention as red flags or something parents should pay greater attention to at least? That's a great question. And as you said, so complex. I definitely agree that any kind of shifts are really important to look out for. It's not a one-off, but rather see if there's a pattern that's developing that parents might find concerning. I also think something that's really important to look at is motivation. So for example, this is one of the common concepts that also comes out in our study. We looked at the behavior of driven exercise, which is very difficult to try and ascertain what is healthy exercise and what is unhealthy exercise. So something that is helpful there to look at is the motivation behind the exercise. Is someone exercising because they enjoy it or makes them feel better or because they like a sport, which is we would consider healthy exercise? Or are they instead exercising in a very rigid and organized manner to burn off calories or because they have to exercise at least four to five times to stay fit and to lose weight, which we would then kind of classifies more unhealthy types of exercise. So really looking at like why are they maybe changing the behavior? Why is this something that has suddenly become really important to them? So it sounds like as parents, as educators working in schools, we need to ask questions that open up a discussion about the motivation around that type of exercise. Yes, definitely. And listen out for what I would refer to what you've just described as slightly obsessional behavior or thinking. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. So what we often find in adolescents who have an eating disorder developing and there are some rigid patterns around their eating or rules around what is allowed and what is not allowed. So and really thinking a lot of about food or thinking a lot about their body. So yeah, definitely. 
And this is so difficult because as teenagers move through adolescence and become more body conscious, you know, it's hard, isn't it, to like your body, appreciate your body, have body gratitude. And parents are often terrified of saying the wrong thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just adolescents as well. I think even as adults, in some degree of body dissatisfaction is almost normal. So I think it is very difficult, especially as adolescents, they become more aware of these things. They have these key peer relationships. So appearance is just something that unfortunately is very important at that stage of development. Now, tell us a little bit about your study and what you discovered about BMI. And please describe what that sort of means for those who may not understand the term. Yeah, absolutely. So first of BMI is body mass index. So it's a quite an arbitrary measure whereby we take a height and weight ratio into account. In our study, we looked specifically at BMI percentile. So it's a standardized way to see where would a child's height and weight fall proportionally to their age and gender. BMI is a very interesting factor to look at in this type of literature because we know that in adolescence, parents are some of the key drivers to get them into eating disorder treatment because BMI can be a very physical indicator of something going wrong that's very visual. So one of the very severe eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, is characterized by low body weight, so low BMI. And it's one of those eating disorders that parents especially are very aware of. And once they notice that the child might be um, losing weight or not gaining weight, they might be more likely to seek help. And in our study, we did indeed find that BMI was linked between those two groups, whereby those with low BMI were much more likely to be in treatment compared to higher BMI adolescents. So it sounds like it's something parents need to pay attention to, but then sometimes in in the literature, it talks about parents perhaps shouldn't pay too much attention to, you know, weight or have scales in the house, et cetera, et cetera. Is there sort of a contradiction there that we need to kind of unpick? That's that's a really great question, actually. So I, I definitely think it's something parents should pay attention to in terms of if their child is of a very low weight, because it it could indicate problems, or even even if it's not with eating disorders, there might be something else that's going on. But I think parents should also be really aware that eating disorders do not discriminate. Actually, they are more likely to incur in individuals who are of a higher weight. So I think it's one of those things where we are actually quite good at picking up eating disorder problems in low weight individuals, but we aren't as good yet at identifying them in normal weight or also higher weight individuals. So I think that's something important to be aware of. And presumably, Nora, you can imagine that it's harder to identify these sorts of eating disorders in boys for all sorts of reasons. I think that you know, if you see your teenage son exercising out in the garden every evening, it's something most parents would kind of welcome and keep taking an interest in their diet. They'd probably welcome it. They wouldn't have the sort of the alarm bells. Yeah, definitely. And there's still a lot of stigma around eating disorders in boys and men as well. We haven't really developed a lot of mental health literacy around eating disorders in males. So that's definitely problematic. I think, again, here's something that parents 
might find helpful to look out for is the same kind of things that we've talked about already is change in patterns and really looking at motivations. So, for example, one of the key differences between boys and girls is that boys are much more likely to be concerned about being muscular rather than just being thin, which is a more common desire for girls. But the behaviors and outcomes might still look the same. So they might still have very rigid rules around eating or exercise that might be quite similar to what girls might have just for being thin. So it's, it might be a different goal, but the kind of behaviors and motivations could be quite similar. So it does sound again that it's kind of their relationship to food is very much something to keep an eye on. Definitely. Yes, definitely. Now, you're part of the Everybody Study, which you mentioned earlier, which is one of the most comprehensive longitudinal study of body image and well-being in Australia. Tell us a little bit about body image. You know, what sort of impact can poor body image have on teenagers' well-being, academic performance or social functioning? So, great question, but we know that body image is consistently ranked as one of the key concerns teenagers have, so we know it's something that's really important to them. But we also know from our research that negative body image is linked to a whole range of negative mental health aspects. So, teenagers with negative body image have been found to have higher rates of depressive symptoms, higher levels of anxiety. They're also at risk of developing eating disorders like we talked about. But body image can also have wider impacts on their lives. So just like you said, in terms of social functioning. So, for example, body image might lead to a teenager disengaging from a social sport or from avoiding social gatherings. So it's really something that has a very widespread impact on adolescents' life. And tell us a little bit, what do we know about the impact social media may or may not have on young people's body images? So we're still learning a lot about social media and the impact it has on body image. But I think one of the really interesting pieces of evidence that is coming out of this area of research is that the impact it has has a lot to do with how social media is used. So, for example, we know that viewing images of ideal bodies, so things like influences or trends like fitspiration, they're really linked to more negative body image as well as general lower well-being. Whereas when social media is used in a more positive way, for example, there's some evidence that when people are looking at images linked to body positivity, that they're actually experiencing greater well-being, more positive body image. So still a lot to learn here, but I think it's important to look at how social media is used and not just how much time we're spending on these kind of platforms. And I think from a parental perspective, it's important, again, as part of that sort of culture at home where we're focused on mental health literacy, that we as parents take an interest in what our children are doing and reading and seeing online, that we are there beside them trying to help them be critical of what they're seeing and reading and and just be there to develop that kind of literacy, digital literacy, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that like media literacy, like social media, can have really important impacts on adolescents. So I think that's a great lesson for parents. 
anecdotally, certainly uh, just in the last week, I was at a conference of, of teachers and we were talking about the emerging prevalence, it feels like, of eating disorders in boys. They seem to have at a sort of an earlier age. I was this this conference was for sort of younger age groups. Does that something that chimes with the experience in Australia? Oh, that's that's a great question, actually. I don't think we've looked at that too much in our kind of projects, but it's definitely something interesting to look at. And your paper that we're talking about today, it doesn't examine the barriers to help seeking, but we know it's something you highlight as one of the limitations. But we know that the amount of people seeking help for eating disorders is low compared to other mental health concerns. What can you tell us about barriers to help seeking, which you've learned from other projects, perhaps? Yeah, thank you for bringing this up. It's such an important point and one that I did really want to highlight because we do know that there are lots of people out there that want help but are unable to get the right help for various reasons or are facing barriers in um, getting into treatment services. And we know that there are a lot of barriers to seeking help for mental health problem in general, just like you said, but these tend to be heightened with eating disorders. So, for example, one of the key issues with eating disorders is getting the right type of help. And unfortunately, many health professionals don't necessarily have the right training to be able to identify an eating disorder. And research has actually shown that people with higher weight and who have an eating disorder are more likely to receive referrals for weight loss something that could actually exacerbate their eating disorder compared to receiving a referral for eating disorder treatment. So there's still, just like we talked about, there's still a lot to do with media mental health literacy around eating disorders that is really important in getting people both seeking help but also getting them receiving the right sort of help. And it sounds as well that it's fascinating, isn't it, that perhaps patients who have dramatic weight loss are maybe more likely to be escalated into, you know, urgent care. Whereas, as you say, people who perhaps don't look like they have a, an eating disorder in the traditional sense are overlooked and they're sort of their condition is totally misinterpreted. Yeah, definitely. And it's something that we know from the, the, the literature, but also anecdotally that especially people who are of a higher weight and then have rapid weight loss can often be due to eating disorder problems, but this is not picked up or thought of as something else. And then it takes them a long time to actually receive the treatment they need. Now, I'm not sure what's happening in Australia, but in this country, we've had a big rise in eating disorders following the pandemic, which I know isn't over, but sort of post-COVID cases have been rising. And, you know, there is a great concern about the availability of appropriate help and into treatment. Schools in particular, you know, schools are on the front line of many of these issues. And the first people might be teachers who notice a difference in children's or teenagers eating behaviours. What should schools be doing in terms of the curricula that they offer, the messaging that they give? What can they do? You know, if you were running a school, um, Nora, what would you try and do to make sure that you're creating a kind of a culture that really can help support young people when it comes to body image and all these important issues? That's a great question. And yes, unfortunately, we are seeing similar trends here in Australia in regards to the impact of the pandemic. 
But even more broadly than that, I think schools actually have a a lot they can do in these kind of situations. We already talked a lot about mental health literacy. So that's definitely something that can be implemented in schools, whereby schools are used to promote mental health literacy among their students. But more broadly than that, we know that body image, talking more broadly, is often linked to social and cultural ideas of what we should look like, what the ideal body is, and having this kind of desire to look like that. So, and often that's not possible. A lot of us can't actually look like the ideal that is being promoted. So and ways to overcome that often come from disengaging from this ideal image. So to foster greater acceptance of one's own body or even just viewing one's body in light of functionality rather than appearance. So focusing more on what our bodies can do rather than what our body looks like. And that is something that can definitely be both encouraged and also modelled by schools and school populations where this kind of body positivity is a bit more fostered rather than this striving for an ideal body image. So, Nora, you've written this fabulous paper, which is very exciting, and it was freshly published, wasn't it, in August? Is that correct? Yes. So this was just published in the issue of early intervention in psychiatry. That's correct. And what are you working on now? Tell us a little bit about some of your projects. So at the moment, I'm working more with the everybody study, which we already talked about, and trying to determine more the longitudinal relationships between these factors to really work out what is it that is driving these eating disorder behaviours, to figure out is there something we can identify early on to help adolescents deal with these symptoms. Well, it sounds like it's utterly invaluable work. So thank you so much for all the work that you do. And I have to say, when I read that you were based at the Centre for Emotional Health, I thought, wow, what an amazing place to work. What else is going on in that centre? What's it like to be there? It's an amazing uh, research centre. I'm really lucky to be part of it. So it is a broad mental health centre, which means there are a lot of projects going on, one of them being eating disorders, but also other kinds of research. So, for example, we recently piloted a new treatment for social anxiety in children and adolescents at the centre. And other researchers are looking how to support older adults with the impacts of lockdowns. So really wide variety of studies, but very interesting. Well, listen, Nora, thank you so much. And thank you for being our researcher of the month. So we will be telling all of our schools in our tooled up community about your work and sharing some of the key messaging within this podcast. And we will always keep an eye out on what you're publishing and doing and try and disseminate that as far as we can. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site. 